Welcome to episode 153 of the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. I am Laurent Bannock, and today I had a great conversation, if I do say so myself, with Professor Kevin Tipton, who you may recall was on a recent episode, only a few episodes back, we had Kevin talking to us about muscle protein balance back in December. Well, since then, if you've been following our news via our social media outputs, etc., you'll have learned that Kevin has joined the IOPN as our Director of Science and Research. So you can expect to hear a great deal more of Kevin as our sort of resident expert guest on this podcast. He will be featuring regularly, so I'm very excited about that, uh, along with all the usual external guests that we have. And also, we will be unleashing a wide range of additional projects at the IOPN, which Kevin will be spearheading to include research and other outputs and inputs, if you like, to our Diploma in Performance Nutrition, for example, where Kevin will be adding his considerable expertise to our world-renowned program there, as well as a regular journal club and various other things. So can't wait to tell you more about that in the future. But let's talk about today's discussion that we had, which was on the topic of muscle protein synthesis. Now, when we're determining nutrition and exercise recommendations, whether it's for optimal health and performance, it's important to understand the response of muscle protein synthesis, particularly as it relates to how we assess the quality and, and relevance, if you like, of our performance nutrition interventions, our, our recommendations. Now, despite what we may have thought we knew about muscle protein synthesis, there's actually a great deal of uncertainty still about muscle protein synthesis. And this is something that we talk about in today's episode, particularly areas such as muscle protein synthesis and its response to resistance training or exercise and nutrition interventions, where we have a particular interest in how that relates to muscle anabolism and physiology. So we try and unravel as much as we can, as you can imagine, it's limited by the amount of time that we've got and also my ability to keep up with with Kev on what is an immensely uh, complicated topic. But I did my best and I hope that you all benefit. We delved into topics that relate to muscle protein synthesis, quickly delved back into muscle protein balance and areas such as protein balance or nitrogen balance and the relevance that has to muscle protein synthesis and, and hypertrophy in general, and why there is actually a disconnect in this area between what we thought we know and what we really need to know and, and are starting to know. Factors like muscle protein synthesis is not just about hypertrophy, it's also about remodeling and repair of this muscle tissue. And Kevin takes us through a tour of some important factors, such as why training status matters, the various methods of measurements and why they matter, control of training variables in studies and why that is highly influential to how we should interpret the information that we're getting in these studies and papers and how that would impact our, our practice. And of course, why physiology matters. There are considerable differences between people and we even delve into topics like translational capacity and sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. So anyway, you can enjoy that in our discussion in a minute. Let me just quickly plug what we do at the IOPN. As I said, we've got Kevin on board. So, you know, we've got all sorts of things that we have been doing and will be doing with regards to research. We look forward to over the coming months and years really playing a much bigger role in the publications, etc. in this area, particularly as it relates to sport and exercise nutrition practice and information that is relevant to that for you as practitioners and scientists interested in the applied aspects of, of sport and exercise nutrition. That really ties in, of course, to what we've already been doing for a while, which is our practice-focused diploma in performance nutrition, which 
is complementary to other training programs, degrees and whatnot in sport and exercise nutrition and or bridges the gap between sport and exercise science sort of training programs and what is required to be a specialist in sport and exercise nutrition and to upskill and upgrade the knowledge for those that you know, there are the personal trainer, nutrition coach who really wants to get serious about their knowledge and, and get into this professional pathway. Well, anyway, look, you can learn more about that at our website at www.theiopn.com, where obviously you can find the link to this podcast, which will take you to the main website where you can access the transcripts, the show notes, the various other things that goes with these episodes. I've only been getting the transcripts made for the more recent episodes where you'll see an updated graphic for every episode is how you can quickly uh, gauge which ones do and don't have all those new upgrades. I am going back in time and cherry picking a variety of of episodes to have them re-edited, refreshed audibly, but also get transcripts. Please do contact us and let us know if there's any past episodes you'd love to see re-edited and get transcripts to and so on and I'll put them on the top of the list for you and if there's any topics or anything you would love for us to get into please also write to us, uh, email, etc., and let us know. Anyway, that's enough of that. I hope that you enjoy this uh, conversation I had with Kevin today as much as I did. Here you go and enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. I am Laurent Banach, of course, and today I'm particularly excited to bring back Professor Kevin Tipton. Now, you might go, hang on. We just had Kev on this podcast only a couple of episodes ago, and that is true, but there are a number of differences between then and now, one of which, of course, is that was December 2020, and it's a completely new year. But also, as many of you will no doubt know if you've been watching our updates and so on, our news, our big news of the year is that we are delighted to welcome Kevin, as our Director of Science and Research at the IOPN. So, Kev, we are now colleagues. Welcome back. Very excited excited about that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're up in our game. That's an exciting part of our mission this year. And I know that we've got lots of plans. And, you know, the things that we do at the IOPN are constantly growing and developing. And I'm particularly proud of our team in general. And, of course, having you on board, Kev, is, you know, it is just even that more exciting. So I'm so grateful to have you here. So one of the many reasons why we want to have you on the team is you've amassed over the years, many years of knowledge and research experience. So of course, we're going to want to be tapping into that as much as we can for our work at the IOPN. And today, we're actually going to talk about something that you came up with as an idea for us to get into today. So Kev, I'm going to let you introduce this topic and what it is that we're actually going to get into today. Sure. As many people know, large focus of my research over the years has been on muscle protein synthesis and measuring the response of muscle protein synthesis to exercise and nutrition. And over the years, an assumption that is most often made is that measuring that response, if you're measuring the response of protein synthesis between, say, two interventions, two supplements or two types of exercise or whatever, that when you get the biggest response of muscle protein synthesis, you're going to lead to the most hypertrophy. Now, that assumption has been challenged, of course, in a a paper a few years ago out of Stu's lab, Stu Phillips' lab by Cam Mitchell, showed there was a clear disconnect between the response of muscle protein synthesis to exercise in protein following resistance exercise and following that, the hypertrophy that occurred. And that sent everybody into a tizzy about, oh, then what's good is protein synthesis and all this stuff. And so I think it's worthwhile to sort of explore what is the physiological and practical relevance of the measurement of muscle protein synthesis and how does it relate or does it relate to hypertrophy? Or if not, then what is it, what is it telling us? Yeah. And this is in many levels, an important conversation, I feel, because, you know, as the listeners know, I or we are obsessed with this translational component of finding the relevant science or the quality science and then translating it into information knowledge, you know, the information we discuss in these podcasts so that people can take that home and literally apply it into practice effectively. And as performance nutritionists or practitioners in some form or another involved in sport and exercise nutrition, it is important to understand that as a practitioner, it is about 
being effective. You know, it, it's not about geeking up on scientific terminology and being able to recite information that one reads in books and papers, because that's all very well and good. But ultimately, we still need to get a successful outcome for our clients, our, our athletes. So that knowledge is only power if it's actually understood and translated and applied effectively, which of course is the reason for, for having these types of conversations with, with people like yourself. Now, in reading up for this podcast, as I do for all my podcasts, you know, it's not like I'm new to this, but it always blows me away when they use phrases in these review papers like, and we'll talk about this today, things like this concept of muscle protein synthesis and muscle hypertrophy is far from being in a position of we know everything we you know there's so much that we don't know and particularly when we're thinking about you know all these journals and all these papers and maybe podcasts that we might listen to on these topics a lot of assumptions have been made and conclusions are arrived at in these various papers and there are opinions that exist out there on how certain nutritional strategies can influence adaptations to training and ultimately you know, those strategies are used for athletes, for teams, for recreational sports to a degree of, well, it's, it's, a, it's something that's done daily. You know, we eat many times a day and these nutritional strategies are used to influence those things. Whereas actually, a lot of these things that we take as given or a fact are, are not necessarily as, well, fixed as we might like to think. So Kev, I thought a good thing for this discussion would be for us to, well, maybe start off with a few definitions because not everyone's going to be on the same page or the same level of of understanding as to what some of these terms are going to be and i guess in this conversation today we're going to use a lot of terms this is one of these areas that could get very technical but there are things like muscle protein synthesis there's terms like hypertrophy like i've just discussed and then protein balance and and so on nitrogen balance and and such maybe you could just quickly define what some of those terms are so that we understand what you mean by this as we get into this conversation today. Sure. We start with hypertrophy. Basically, what we're talking about is ultimately is an increase in protein content of the muscle. And in particular, the myofibrillar proteins acted in myosin. And the more that content increases, then the, the bigger the muscle can get. Now, that protein content increases as a result of a positive balance of those particular proteins. So by that, I mean, proteins are constantly turning over. So you constantly have synthesis of new proteins and simultaneously breakdown of proteins. Now, those are constant and concomitant. So at the same time, and, you know, I used to always tell my students, you know, you don't want to stop breakdown. The only time you don't have any protein breakdown is if you're dead. So and we'll probably get into this a little bit more. And we sort of did last time I was talking about the importance of protein breakdown per se. But you have a balance between those two rates. And if the rate of synthesis is greater than the rate of breakdown over any given period of time, then you're going to get an increase in that protein. And in the case of the myofibular proteins, that'll result in bigger muscles, ultimately. So you have a resistance exercise does increase protein synthesis, but it also increases protein breakdown. They both go up. It's just that synthesis goes up more. Now, if you haven't eaten anything, then breakdown is still going to be higher than synthesis and you won't gain any muscle. You need some amino acids there to provide that and to help build muscle. So over the long term, each time you exercise and you stimulate synthesis, and then that is further enhanced because the exercise per se allows the muscle to utilize the ingested proteins to a greater extent. So that each time you eat for at least 24 hours after that, you get this enhanced response to the amino acids of, of muscle protein senses. It's greater than breakdown. You have positive balance and you're gaining protein. And then over a period of time, you get enough of that buildup that you can measure it. Now, as we'll get into, that changes with training status. Those responses change. So now we have positive muscle protein balance. That's when synthesis is greater than breakdown over a given time period. And you can think about that time period on, you know, minutes to hours. And if you want to, you can try to sum those up over days and weeks. Now, then, so you have protein synthesis, muscle protein synthesis. You have the balance between synthesis and breakdown, and that's either negative or positive or in balance. And that'll determine whether you're gaining or losing muscle proteins and ultimately muscle mass if those proteins are 
the myofibrillar proteins. There's a lot of ifs, right? Well, different proteins are responding to those exercise bouts. And so you're going to have those, but its size comes in if it's, if it's the myofibrillar proteins. Yeah. Which it is in resistance exercise. We know that. That's typically what's measured nowadays is you take a muscle sample, you take a muscle biopsy, and you, you can use a, a biochemical process to separate out the different types of proteins. So you can separate out the myofibrillar proteins. And we know that those respond to resistance exercise. So when we think about the, you know, there's, there's a body of knowledge which is not insignificant at this point in time on this topic. But as you cast your mind back or as we review the, the studies Going back, I mean, how many, this is more than years, this is decades now. How far back does this body of knowledge extend back to, you think, as it relates to what is significant to sport and exercise science? Probably go back to, well, Mike Rennie did a study in the late 80s, was one of the first studies. I think it was the first study to measure muscle protein synthesis with exercise. Then there were a couple of studies done in Canada. Chesley was the first author that was there were first studies with FSR, fractional synthetic rate. So if we go back to the vocabulary again, fractional synthetic rate is a specific method to measure muscle protein synthesis. Yeah. And we, we probably will have to touch on the a little bit differences in the methodology in a few minutes, but definitely um, want to. Yeah. So Chesley did those studies in the early 90s, 92, 93, a couple of studies. That was with Mark Tarpolsky and McDougall. And then that's about the same time I started in this field in Texas at Bob Wolf's lab. And then we published a study in 95 where we did measure FSR, but we also used a, an arteriovenous balance method to measure muscle protein census. And that was the, the first time that method was used. And you can measure breakdown with that method as well. And so that was the first study that we measured both together with resistance exercise in 95. Johnny Biolo was the first author on that one. The reason why I'm mentioning this, Kev, is because, and I've gotten into this in many well, not many, but in a number of podcasts in the past where there's an evolution of a, of a body of knowledge. In this case, we're talking about muscle protein synthesis. As I mentioned earlier, there's sort of an assumption that we kind of know almost everything there is to know. And by we, I mean more in the sort of the basic journalism that exists on this topic. But of course, as I, as I said, as you start reading deeper and deeper into this, you start to realize that this is far being, you know, in a place where we can definitively say we know everything because of course we, we don't. And on this particular topic, although we're using terms that are familiar throughout that time span, such as muscle protein synthesis, there have been different ways of measuring responses to training and nutrition and its impact on muscle protein synthesis, which has also influenced the interpretation of, of that information over time. I mean, maybe we should get into that a bit because I feel that, you know, that does alter this body of knowledge, although there is a tendency to just bag it all in. You know, you see people doing reviews with all this information, but they aren't they haven't all used the same techniques. And and perhaps if we do look back at some of that information, we would interpret it differently now, knowing what we know now back then, if that's not too confusing. <laughs> Basically, we measure muscle protein census, and we do that primarily using stable topic tracers, so metabolic tracers. So you have an amino acid that's labeled, and it's labeled usually by having extra neutrons, which makes it heavier. So biochemically, they act exactly the same as the, the regular amino acid, phenylalanine, for example, but they're heavier so we can detect them. We use those in different ways to measure muscle protein census. And as I mentioned before, you can measure muscle protein synthesis on sort of different levels. But ultimately, what we're talking about here is taking, you know, a ribosome will take, will we'll bring in the separate amino acids and make a polypeptide chain. And that's what we're talking about is muscle protein synthesis, right? And ultimately, that's what we're measuring. Now, we can measure it in, like I said, in a couple of major ways. One's arterial venous balance, and one is what we call the precursor product method, and that's fractional synthetic rate. Now, with arteriovenous balance and early on, we were measuring mixed muscle protein senses. So we're measuring all of the, we would just take a muscle biopsy and we had representing all the proteins in a muscle. And as I said before, nowadays we can, and for the past sort of 15 years or so, people have been taken and they can separate out using a, a detergent separation method to get the different classes of proteins. And then there have been a handful of studies now that are starting to look at even individual proteins using proteomics which is kind of exciting. So we can get a lot more detailed, more resolution of the information. 
that's with the FSR. With the arteriovenous balance methods, you can divide those into two types. One's called a two-pool model, where you just measure the artery, what's in the artery, what's in the vein. Three-pool model is the artery, vein, and the muscle. So, and the three-pool model gives us a little bit more detail on muscle protein synthesis. So we're making less assumptions, basically, without going into too much boring detail. And like I said, with the arteriovenous balance method, we can also measure protein breakdown. But again, it's all the mixed proteins. And as we talked about on the last pod that I was on, you really can't get much more resolution than that, not with any sort of valid methods. So you're kind of stuck with just the mixed, as opposed to like with protein synthesis, you can get more. Now, there are some limitations with the methodology that it's much more difficult to measure feeding-related responses with the arteriovenous balance method. You really need a steady state. So if you're taking in a, a bolus ingestion, then those models fall apart. Now, people have done it, and I'm a little bit dubious about some of those. Because what, what we did in the early days is we would just infuse the amino acids so we would get a steady state of amino acid levels in the blood to represent. So and the arteriovenous balance methods, as you might guess, you've got to have an artery. And back in the 90s and early 2000s, we were able to do that with usually a femoral artery stick. And nowadays, ethics committees aren't really allowing that except in clinical situations. So in healthy volunteers, probably not going to be able to use AV balance that much. But we can do the precursor product method, which is the fractional synthetic rate and the fractional breakdown rate. And the, the precursor product method is a pretty intuitive method, basically you take a muscle sample, well, you start an infusion, or now you can do it orally with de deuterated water, but you, you introduce a labeled amino acid. And usually with an infusion, or it used to be always with an infusion, and then you take a muscle sample. And so then the label inside the muscle tissue is low. Then you keep infusing, and then that, that synthetic rate is going on, and then you take another muscle sample an hour, two hours, six hours, you know, whatever later, and you measure how much of that label is in that protein in the second sample. And the difference between the two represents the rate. So the greater the increase in that label in the muscle tissue, the greater the rate of protein synthesis. And then you have to worry about what's the, what the precursor levels are and stuff like that. But I don't think we need to get into those details. But essentially, it's pretty intuitive. The greater that increase in that label inside that muscle tissue, the greater the rate of protein synthesis. So then you compare that between two types of exercise or two types of proteins, or, and then you can, you can get a, a difference. So, Kevin, even though we're only just starting to delve into this topic already, one gets the impression that this is actually, I mean, it's obviously, for those that know and those that research in this area, it's obviously a deeply complex area, and we're going to tease out some of these things now. But it has been reduced into very simple levels of, of understanding where people use terms like muscle protein synthesis and hypertrophy. And look, it's quite simple. You just, you know, resistance training or resistance exercise and the result is muscles will grow. But is it as simple as that? Or is it more complicated than that? Or is there a, a lot of ifs and buts to that statement? It's certainly more complicated than that. As I'm sure everybody will understand, there's a great deal of heterogeneity in the response of muscle hypertrophy. You know, you can get three different guys and you're going to get three different levels of hypertrophy, even though they do exactly the same thing. And there are all sorts of reasons for that. You can start with genetics, you can go to feeding, you can go to rest and all sorts of things. That, of course, complicates. So then the question is, well, why do we even do protein census when we can just do studies and measure hypertrophy? And then we know what's the best nutrition or whatever to support that. Well, like I say, you get this heterogeneity. So you have to have larger sample sizes. You also get some of that heterogeneity is genetic and you can't do anything about it. Some of it's because of various variables that you need to control in those studies for a long period of time. How much sleep they're getting? Are they all eating exactly the same thing? Did one of them break up with his girlfriend and, you know, go on a bench for a week? So you can't control free living individuals who are lifting weights. And so you get, you get a large variability. So you've spent lots of time. Then how long do you need you know, are you going to go for six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks? The longer you go, the less control you have and the trickier it is. So it's problematic to do that. So that's one of the reasons that we've gone to measuring protein census, because we can get a snapshot of an acute response of over several hours. And we'll, we need to get into that a little bit later, but yeah. how long and why. But you get a snapshot. And then the idea is, is that predictive 
of that hypertrophic response over a longer period of time. And that is the sort of key controversial question. And that's exactly why we're having this conversation, because there is that assumption that muscle protein synthesis is going to result in somebody yeah, you know, I mean, it's the holy grail. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to be bigger and stronger. But is that necessarily the case? And of course, it's not as simple, obviously, which we'll, which we can get no, into. But just to avoid burying the lead, the bottom line is sometimes, mm. <laughs> you know, and it, it is if you if you're careful and you do it under the right circumstances, but not always. And and I think to make that assumption is is a mistake. It's certainly not predictive on an individual basis. If I were to measure your response of muscle protein senses today, I could not predict what would happen. But it is on a group basis. And there are plenty of studies where there is a link between the response. Now, it's not quantitative. It, so if I get a 50% larger increase in protein senses with this intervention versus that one, you know, you're not going to have one guy looking like the Hulk and the other guy looking, you know, a little bit bigger, right? You're not going to get a 50% difference. That's a function of what that protein synthesis response actually is, which is what we're going to get into. So, yeah. so that's sort of, you know, without that's, so the lead's not buried now. We can then crack on with why it does sometimes and what else it could mean kind of thing, which I think is interesting and important. It is. And I just before we go down this path, because, you know, this would be an eye opener for quite a few people, I would imagine, is, you know, why has muscle protein synthesis been used to predict hypertrophy? And what has been the most common ways in which people have predicted hypertrophy and how has that impacted, you know, the overwhelming bulk of that knowledge that we see out there and that we adopt as the Bible, so to speak? Well, the metabolic mechanism for changes in muscle, as we've said, is muscle protein synthesis. Now, why isn't protein breakdown involved? Well, it is to some extent, but like I said, in the response to, to an exercise bout, you get an increase in both. So it's not like breakdown goes down and you get bigger. But also, as I said, breakdown is more difficult to measure. And we know that the majority of the response to interventions is a change in census. It changes much more than breakdown. So it it's, was used as a proxy. And so based on the metabolic mechanism and the assumptions, that's when protein census was first started to be used. And then we did it and Srinair did it in 97, 98, showed some correlations of protein census with muscle mass and muscle strength. So that's, again, associative data, not cause and effect. So, you know, again, that's a that's a, a problem or it can be a problem. It doesn't have to be. So this was back in, you know, 20 some odd years ago and seeing an association of protein census response and muscle mass and strength. So then the assumption was always just that protein census does represent predictive value for muscle hypertrophy. And that was pretty well accepted, although I got challenged quite often at conferences, you know, about that. If you read the papers back from the late 90s and early 2000s, almost all of them are going to say something about how this is the metabolic mechanism for muscle hypertrophy. And it is. But then, and we keep coming back to the question is, does that measurement of protein census really give us predictive value? Not always. That's for many different reasons, both methodological and physiological. Yeah. And also muscle protein synthesis isn't just about hypertrophy, is it? There's more going on than that. That's right. And that's where the physiological aspects come in. So Stu Phillips and the first author was Felipe Damas, did a really nice study a few years ago trying to address this a bit. And so what they did was they measured muscle protein synthesis at three different times in a training cycle. So they started untrained males and then they measured protein synthesis in the first week, the third week, and I want to say 10th week, 10th or 12th week. And what they saw was that when they measured protein synthesis in the first week, that that wasn't associated with the change in muscle mass over that 10-week period. But when they measured it in the third week, it was associated with it, and even stronger in the 10th week. So early on in the training cycle, you're seeing this increase in protein synthesis in response to the exercise, but it's not associated with hypertrophy. And what they also did in that study, which was really nice, was showed they measured Z-line or Z-line streaming as a measure of muscle damage. And of course, the muscle damage was much greater after the first bout of exercise than it was after three weeks and it was after 10 weeks. And that muscle damage was much greater, more greatly associated with the protein synthesis in the first week. And so the, the notion is that 
early on in training, a lot of that response of the muscle protein synthesis is more about remodeling and repair of that damage that's occurring than it is hypertrophy. But later on, once you get past that damaging stage, you start doing the, it's more focused on the hypertrophy. The other factor that's complicating in there is probably there's some of that protein sense, especially if we measure mixed muscle protein senses, some of that response is going to be to kind of rearrange, if you will, the types of proteins that are, are going in here, trying to build the capacity to build more muscle. And so you have to change, you have to build different proteins as well. So, so it, yeah, it's much more complex than just hypertrophy, but especially early on in the training, later on in the training, it is more predictive. So, just, so then if you're going to do, if you want to do, say, look at different nutritional things, then you, you probably want to do that in trained individuals more than in untrained. Yeah. And we're going to, because as those various reviews have mentioned, and I know you want to get into training status in a bit more detail, and we will in a second, but I think it's just, just to go back to some basics for those that aren't physiologists or you're describing this process where initially the resistance exercise, the resistance training actually exerts a level of stress that as long as you're training halfway decently will actually result in some degree of damage. Although that word damage sounds, you know, it's a necessary part of the process. It isn't necessarily a bad thing, but the response to that might well be, or what we what we now see is that there's a, as you have with damaged tissue, there's going to be an, you know, there's an inflammatory process, potentially an increase in water and so on, which some people have assumed is just, you know, that's that there's a hypertrophy process going on here. And of course, there are modifications that occur maybe after four weeks relative to what happens, maybe 18 weeks of consistent training. And yet, and, and where I'm interested in this is a lot of these studies have tried to justify a nutritional strategy, like a supplement, for example, based on very short timelines for the study using very basic ways of observing what's actually going on. In fact, they might just do it on the basis of body composition assessments where they're looking at, you know, like the size of the muscle or an estimate of the increase in muscle mass when actually that's quite misleading, isn't it? Could you just quickly explain what, what's going on there? So can you, I didn't really understand exactly what the question was. So, well, it's not so much a question. It, it's just that there's a process there that, that you've already gone into, but I think for us as practitioners or sports nutritionist, it's quite useful to understand that, you know, there's a bit of a timeline that's going on here in terms of the response to resistance training and exercise and what's actually happening to, if you like, the body composition that we're able to measure on a basic level, i.e. through skin folds, through bioimpedance and so on. But actually those changes in the architecture, if you like, to that muscle isn't necessarily hypertrophy. It was assumed to be hypertrophy maybe in the first very early stages of this process. So does that make any sense? I think so. Partially what we're getting into a little bit here is methods of measuring hypertrophy. So I'm going to keep saying it the American way. So what are we really measuring when we're measuring body composition? And that depends on the method, of course. And partially what we're getting into a little bit too is, you know, there's this concept that people talk about called sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, which, you know, could be fluid infiltration and, and other things as well, as opposed to protein gains. Now, on one level, the assumption is that every time you have a, a, an exercise bout and a feeding, you get a little bit more protein built there. But as I was saying early on in the process, that's probably not true. You're probably, well, maybe to some, to a little bit, but not, not that much. It's not until three or four weeks in that you're really starting to, to build that protein. Now, we know we can measure increases in muscle mass as early as, say, you know, two and a half, three weeks into a, a training program. The trouble is, what is that that you're measuring? Is that is that actually increased protein or is it more other things like fluid and connective tissue, which could, would be protein, but not the myofibular proteins. So that confuses the issue, especially early on in the training. That also leads to another reason why there might be a disconnect between your measurements of synthesis, protein synthesis and hypertrophy is because of the method used to measure hypertrophy. If you do a DEXA and, and you don't control for fluid status, you're going to get a different reading than if you if you do. And there, Louise Bart did some studies on that. And then Nidia Rodriguez did some in Sterling when I was there. 
with different fluid status and DEXA. So, there, you know, you got to think about what are you actually measuring and what does that mean? And that's more or less the whole theme of this whole podcast is, you know, measuring protein synthesis, but also measuring hypertrophy. Both of those have their their assumptions and you got to be careful about how you're doing that or, or how you're thinking about those. And of course, that's why when you're reading this research, you must not just read you know, the abstract or the conclusion of the paper, you want to get in there and say, well, how did they even, you know, how did they even run this study and how did they arrive at those conclusions, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I tell my students, you know, if you're going to read about hypertrophy and they're using DEXA, for example, you want to see, have they actually controlled for fluid status or or other other factors, right? When they've done that DEXA, are they fasted when they come in for the DEXA? Or do they you know, if you want to do it properly, and there's some guidelines, and, and Louise wrote a nice set of these guidelines on how, on how to do this to get the best control of that DEXA. So it is actually measuring or giving you answers about that you think you're getting as opposed to not. Bioimpedance is the same way. Absolutely. That's even more sensitive to fluid status. And skin folds have all their various and sundry assumptions and, and, and issues. And, you know, in the old days, I don't know how many people do it anymore, but we used underwater weighing. And that was always fun because, you know, you had to had to account for residual lung volume, for example. And you know, using Archimedes principle, which, you know, early, I guess people use bod pod nowadays still, don't they? That's roughly the same. Anyway, you got all these different techniques of measuring hypertrophy and they all have their assumptions, too. So this is why if you're not careful, then you can't use FSR to predict hypertrophy, it's possible just because you've made mistakes on measuring the hypertrophy that you've introduced this error that makes the FSR and the hypertrophy not match up when they might, they might really be telling you something. So I think you got to keep in mind all these things. And I think, you know, discerning listeners, that's what you want to do as a practitioner is you don't want to just accept, like you say, the abstract. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I bang on about context all the time. I used to tell my students that what you want to do with a, when you're reading a paper, the main question you want to ask, and this goes back to what we were just talking about, is you don't just accept the conclusions that the authors give you. You go and you look and you read the paper and you evaluate it and you go, ask yourself, are the conclusions supported by the results given the limitations in the method and the design and within the context of the literature? I think when students are first trying to learn how to read papers, that's not what they do. They just accept what the authors say. This is something that we've talked about this and we're, we'll, we'll do a podcast for everyone to get into this more. And of course, we're going to be doing a, a journal club soon for our students at the IOPN on our program where you're going to really take them through this stuff because it's so important to understand what does this all mean? And you know, the, the, the context is not just a buzzword. It, it is incredibly important to get your head around, but it takes a bit of training to understand this stuff. Because of course, you know, some of the readers are going to be going like, it's all very well for Professor Kevin Tipton to be saying this, but he knows what he's talking about. So that's what I meant at the beginning is, you know, at the very least, we're increasing the awareness that not all this information is as strong as you might like to believe. And that's why, you know, the con- the contextual considerations are an important factor, which brings me to something you mentioned earlier. And about training status and why that's important. And I remember you and Stu talking about this quite a few years ago now. I think it was on the first podcast we ever did with you guys on protein nutrition. And you guys were talking about the fact that, you know, there are so many studies done on people where their training status is, you know, they're novices. So of course that has a certain influence on what's going to happen after they start resistance training relative to someone with some experience and an elite athlete, and of course, how that influences the data and subsequently the interpretation of that typically to potentially arrive at a very pro-supplement narrative, which you know can be very misleading. But, but bring it back to this conversation, Kev, why is training status such an important factor in this? Well, I think as, as I mentioned before, because protein, the response of protein senses changes with training. It's a variable response. Partially, that's due to what we talked about before, which is that you're, it's responding to just for a different reason. But also, it seems like that protein synthesis. Okay, so let me. No, I won't do that just now. I'll, I'll just say this, and then we'll get into why. But basically, 
you're seeing a change in protein synthesis. And Stu and I did a study back when we were in Texas, and Stu's the first author on this paper. I think I think it's 99 we published it. It was a cross-sectional study, so we took trained and untrained individuals and measured protein synthesis and protein breakdown. And this was mixed and showed that the response is different in the two. And protein synthesis goes up with training. And protein breakdown, the response isn't as great with training. And that was cross-sectional. So then you have all the complication of the, you know, different individuals and all that. But but that was what, what we found. And, and then subsequently, there have been other studies and Stu's done a couple of these. And you see that the response to feeding changes with training. In that study, that original study, that 99 study was fasted. Those are the fasted response. These kind of things complicate this ability to predict. This. So, if, you know, like I sort of said at one other point, now, if I were going to try to judge a, an intervention, uh, I certainly wouldn't measure untrained individuals and their response to try to predict whether an intervention is going to be better or not. I think that that's been fairly clearly shown to be a problematic and maybe just a guess at best if you did that. And of course, with you saying that, though, there is still plenty of data out there, plenty of papers that have done that, though. And again, this is why you need to go into that paper and have a look, because that in your filtering system is like, "Mm, that's probably not relevant to what I'm trying to achieve here. What about, I know you've mentioned about methods of measurement, but because we're on this theme of things like training status matter, we talked about from a measurement perspective, things like body composition methods matter when we're trying to determine the changes to that person's physique, muscle mass, and so on. And actually, I did a podcast on that uh, a few years ago now with Sean Aaron, Professor Sean Aaron, who's coming back on the podcast very soon, as it happens. But uh, that'll be worth listening to. But obviously, the actual methods of measurement itself for determining muscle protein synthesis, just take us through that a bit more. Okay. So, Let me start with saying, to expand on what I said a minute ago, which is we know that the peak magnitude of muscle protein synthesis is greater after training. So this is to increase the complexity here. The time of the peak is later in untrained and trained, and that's going to get into the methods a bit, so keep that in mind. And the the duration of the response seems to be greater in untrained than, than trained, right? So you got different aspects of the response here. Now, that's important because of the way that we measure protein synthesis. And I'll just dispense with the arteriovenous balance quickly because what that relies on is, let's go with the three-pool model to make it, just get it out of the way. You take an arterial sample and a venous sample at the same time. And usually the way that we used to do it was you'd sample over about half an hour. You'd take like five samples or four samples over half an hour and take a muscle biopsy at that half hour and assume that that muscle biopsy covers all four of those. And you, you average those together because what you get is each individual time you do it, you get a bunch of variability. But if you average them, then you the assumption is you get a pretty good number. So that means you're getting a snapshot over that 20 minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour, however long you've taken those four samples and averaged them. So you could do, you know, one in the first half hour after exercise, one in the two hours later, and one. So you can see some different snapshots there. Now, but of course, you can't keep those arterial <laughs> catheters in for a huge amount of time. We did one study with 24 hours. So we had them, we did that one and we published that in 2004, I think, or three. But, you know, again, you're not going to see too many of those. Most of the studies you're going to see are fractional synthetic rate. Now, with that, as I said, you have to take two biopsies and look at the difference between the two. So the trick is how long between those two biopsies. And and if you think back to what I just said about the, the differences in the peak value versus the duration of the response and when the peak occurs, you could miss that if you take the samples at the wrong time. So then if you're comparing untrained to trained, say, you know, you're you're going to have to decide when to take those muscle biopsies to try to get the best response. Now, you can do a little bit of time resolution by taking multiple biopsies. So, for example, Stu and Dan Moore did a study probably about 12 years ago or so now where they took a sample at one hour after exercise three hours after and five hours after. So now you can do a one hour response or a what is it, zero, one, three, and five. So you can do from zero to one, from one to three, and from three to five, and you see a difference in the pattern that way. But the shorter you do this sampling, the more problematic the measurement is. And the, the, now the mass spec methods are much better now than they were back in the day when we first started doing this. But 
you know, you get much more noise the shorter you do that sample. So zero to one hour, that's tricky. J- just having an hour of incorporation, that gives you very low signal and you got to be good. And so you got people who are good mass spectrometrists, you know, the analytical people who are really good that can do this, but it's tricky. So the longer you do it, the better, the cleaner the measurement is. And so you tend to see a lot of studies where there's like four hours from zero to four hours after exercise or something like that. But you're missing time resolution in there. You don't really know what's happening because essentially what you're, and this is where, like we were talking before before we got on air about needing a whiteboard here to show mm. this. But let's see if I can do it verbally. If you adjust when that biopsy is taken, what you're really looking at with FSR is ultimately it's the integration. So it's really the area under the curve of that response of muscle protein census, of that rate of muscle protein census. And if it changes over that time, which it does, then you've got to know when to take that biopsy. So some people don't even take a biopsy until half an hour 45 minutes after exercise for the first biopsy because they think that there's a delay in that response. They don't want to get it until it's actually started. So you really got an area under the curve during that time of whatever whatever time frame you choose or the, the investigator chooses to take those biopsies. And so the problem is, of course, whatever that intervention is doing that you're trying to test, it might change that time course. And so for one intervention, you're better off taking a biopsy from zero to three hours to really encapsulate that response properly, whereas it might be zero to four hours to really encapsulate the other response. And maybe it's gone back down to zero by the three hours. And if you take four hours and you're really, you're kind of cutting off part of that response and you have to try to think about all this when you're designing these studies. And so I can tell you, we would spend many hours, me and the postdocs or postgrads or whatever debating, okay, do we take the biopsy now or do we take it this time? And Go back and forth and t- try to make the best decision you can before you you know. So these kind of factors, along with the measurement of hypertrophy and the variability you get there, those also contribute to you know some uncertainty with the responses and whether you can predict hypertrophy. Right. So now we have physiological reasons and we have methodological reasons why you might not get this nice predictive value of muscle protein census with muscle hypertrophy. So Kev. We've been getting into this for about an hour now, and there's still so much for us to talk about. And if people can see, this is clearly a complex area, or at least it shouldn't be oversimplified. I think that's clear that right. there's a need to not have this oversimplified. You know, we talked about sort of measurement issues and methodological issues, and you've talked about things like heterogeneity and factors like that, and of course, individual variability. But one's physiology is also a factor there. And there's a number of areas that I know you wanted to get into, including the translational capacity, which is something that that we don't read so much about over the course of all that literature. Just tell us why physiology really does matter. Well, like I say, the physiological response, the magnitude and the duration of that response is different or can be different to different interventions. And as you just mentioned, you've got, well, as we talked about early, you've got the physiological response is adding protein and also the physiological response is, is remodeling and repairing proteins. So it's not really gaining any it's tearing them down and then building them back up again or building new ones up. And also, as we talked about, we got the translational capacity and translational efficiency. So by that, what I mean is it's based on the number of ribosomes. So, so if everybody thinks back to their protein census, as I said, the, you got the ribosome and then you're building on your, the ribosomes building the polypeptides. Well, you have a certain number of ribosomes in the muscle. Translational efficiency is what we're actually measuring. So that's how much of that protein is being synthesized relative to the number of ribosomes. So efficiency, it's efficient. The more it's doing based on a certain number of ribosomes, the more efficient it is. That's what we're measuring when we're measuring FSR. Now, later on, and there's a thought that you actually increase the number of ribosomes with training. So you're getting greater translational capacity because now you have more ribosomes that can be used. So even if each individual ribosome isn't as efficient, you can make more protein later on. And so that's what's that's what's thought to happen. There's some pretty good argument. There's some indirect measurements of ribosomes, but also more recently, Phil Atherton's lab, uh, Brooke was the first author, I think. They actually did some isotopic tracer methodology to measure ribosomal synthesis. That complicates it even more. You know, so now we got to, are we talking about ribosomal capacity changes maybe later on in the training status? Now you're getting all these Again, all these variables that are related to physiology, like the ribosomes, you get the variables, whether it's repair or remodel or hypertrophy or adding protein, 
And then you got the very the methodological variability. And so you have all this in it and, and the methodological variability of measuring both protein census and hypertrophy. And and also then the like we said earlier, the complications from individual responses of muscle protein census, which can be highly variable. So if I get 12 people, in fact, you can look at some of our studies. We in the last few years, we started showing the individual responses in our graphs because we thought it was giving a lot more information because you can see the difference. And, and also the variability to, of hypertrophy if you get someone training. And everybody knows that. You see in a gym, you, some guys just walk into a gym and they blow up. And some people like me can't, you know, I can live forever and I, you know, I just don't get big. And as before, I was old. We might be able to find you some illegal juice that might have some. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, it, it complicates things. Yeah. Now, you know, I know we're probably going to have to wrap it up in the not too distant future here. So I just, the, Again, the bottom line, to go back to what we talked about earlier, the bottom line is, yes, you can use FSR to predict muscle mass under the right conditions. You know, but I would urge all the listeners to be careful about, about those assumptions or, or, or think about those assumptions when they look at some of these papers. Now, FSR or muscle protein synthesis is also useful from a mechanistic standpoint where, you know, mechanistic data does help us evaluate intervention. So it, it's not... I certainly, and of course, my whole career would be ruined if if I did believe this, that FSR, I do believe, is a valuable tool to assess nutrition interventions. You just got to be careful about the interpretation, as with almost every, well, as with every measurement that you're doing. And so I don't want to throw it out by any means. It's just that, you know, there's some thinking that needs to be done about what it actually means and some care with the interpretation. And I think that's where people are let down often. Well, Kev, that's why you know, learning is an ongoing process, isn't it? We need to learn forwards and we need to learn backwards. And by that, I mean, it's like this business of people, you know, talking about the only research you should be reading and or citing is sort of recent research. But actually, some of that historical stuff is immensely influential in understanding, you know, where all this has come from. And the journey of that body of knowledge is profound to how we we learn how to understand it. and, And obviously, apply it. But that's a, that's a rabbit hole we could go down, which I can't let us do right now, but we will in another podcast, Kev. But I just wanted to quickly just come to something where, you know, when we talk about skeletal muscle or muscle hypertrophy, you know, it's a, fi- a fairly simplistic term that actually. And, and some of the papers I've been reading more recently, they start talking about things like sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Why is that term important to you know to this discussion about why physiology matters kev well because sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is not gaining of the muscle proteins that lead to increased size it's gaining of other factors like i said fluid or connective tissue so that well actually connective tissue wouldn't technically be sarcoplasmic but you can get increase in protein census and connective tissue does have to grow if you're going to get bigger muscles right i mean so, so you're getting more sarcoplasmic, and it's a. I, I haven't studied sarcoplasmic hypertrophy myself, but there there seems to be a core group of investigators which really think that this is a big deal, and others who don't think it's that big a deal. So, if you're getting, especially in an acute response to exercise, if you get some edema and you get sort of bigger muscle, everybody, you know, you go and you get your pump, get your pump on, right? Before you go do your biceps, before you go to the beach, get your pump. And that's basically what you're talking about. You're getting increased blood and stuff in the muscle. And so you're not, well, that, that wouldn't be sarcoplasmic. Sarcoplasmic is actually in the muscle cell. But all that comes from just an acute response and not necessarily gaining muscle protein, which is ultimately where you're going when you're increasing mass and, you know, to some extent, strength. That, no, no, thanks for that. That's perfect. And just sort of one of the final points where I wanted to get into a more sort of summarizing of this topic, just so we can bring it all together for people who are going, oh my God, my head's just exploded, basically, (laughs) (laughs) would be the very topic of our last podcast last December, where we talked about muscle protein breakdown in response to nutrition and exercise. And yes, people should listen to that podcast, but just quickly, why is that also relevant to this topic? Well, I mean, again, we don't really understand it as well as we talked about, you know, ad nauseum last time, but mm. breakdown has to play a role here. And so if we're only measuring census, and this is a common criticism of, of a lot of these papers, if we're only measuring census, then we're missing a little bit of the story, even if we think that, you know, it's 80-20 or something like that, the 
response of hypertrophy is related 80% to census and 20% to breakdown. Well, it's still 20% that we're missing. You know, it has to play a role here. Now, we do know, again, as I mentioned earlier, from our cross-sectional study that we did all those years ago, the response of protein breakdown was less in the trained people than the untrained. So you're getting a difference in these responses. Again, we don't know what proteins those were. So it's a little bit of a black box mystery there. But but if that is true with the myofibrillar proteins, then, then that has to be part of the factor or part of the reason that you're getting this hypertrophy later on. And and it also could be true that it would intuitively anyway, it would fit that 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 lack or that lesser response of breakdown after you're trained could be because you're not getting as much damage and you're not having to break down and, and repair and remodel a lot of those proteins. You're now just adding them on. So you don't the the breakdown is partially in response to you're breaking down those those damaged, if you will, proteins. And or and I almost hesitate to get into this because it adds another another piece of it here. When we're measuring these fasted, you get a stimulation of the pathways that lead to protein synthesis, the mTOR pathway, et cetera. Those exercise itself does that. So you get increased synthesis. Well, you have to get amino acids from somewhere to provide that amino acids for the synthesis. So you got to break down proteins to provide that increase in synthesis. So you're breaking down others to provide it. But as you train, it gets less because now you don't have as much of that going on. You can, and, it, and especially if you're feeding, but we're talking fast today. The breakdown has to be playing a, a role here. We just don't know what it is as, as well as we do the census. So that also adds a little bit of that uncertainty in that when you're trying to say, are we going to predict hypertrophy from protein census? Thanks, Kev. Listen, I think we should park it there. This is not the end of this type of conversation. We'll be doing regular podcasts. So I hope everyone's enjoyed our conversation today, I always learn a huge amount out of these. Well, every podcast I've ever done with everyone, it just blows my mind how much there is to learn in this this body of knowledge that is forever growing. But that's why it's so easy to get lost in it all as well. And like I like to say, you know, we just need to stay with what's relevant to influence effective practice, which is my area of interest. But just by way of just summarizing a little bit, Kev, you know, this is an important topic. In fact, it's not just important, it's incredibly popular. Well, okay. So just to kind of summarize, obviously, I'm not going to argue that muscle protein synthesis is not worth paying attention to or measuring. I definitely think there's a role to play for measurement of protein synthesis to different interventions. What I would argue, and you know, other smarter people agree with me on this, is that in order to save one of the... the a good first step is to measure muscle protein synthesis to different interventions, but maybe that's not the end all to be all to say, okay, now that we know that this intervention gives us a 50% greater response of protein synthesis than this one, that we, we definitely want to jump on the first one. And what we then do is we can use the protein synthesis studies as a starting point to give us a little bit more ability to decide what we're going to do next in a longer term training study. And our feeding study. So a combination of the two, I think, is the way to go to really get the best information. And of course, with all the various and sundry things that people want to test, that's going to be a long-term process. And like you said earlier on, is it means that we don't really know as much as we think we do. And we have to be careful about the interpretations. But as always, as a practitioner, people are going to have to make the best decision that they can, given the information that they have at the time. And that's, unfortunately, is what it is. We're not an all-powerful being to, that we know everything. So we have to make the best decisions that we can, and we have to be willing to learn more and change our mind. And, you, you know, as you know, my favorite thing to say is to be skeptical but open-minded and to, to learn so that we can improve all the time and, and improve the information that we get, but the information that we then pass on to our clients and athletes and exercisers, et cetera. So again, I don't want to throw out protein synthesis at all. I think, yes, we have to be cognizant of the limitations as with anything else we're measuring and cognizant of the limitations in the methods of the hypertrophy measurements as well. And to think about that and to keep it in mind when we're making decisions. That's great, Kev. Thank you so much. There's a huge amount to absorb there from today's discussion. So I know that the benefit of this being a podcast is people can rewind and fast forward and read the transcript. There will be a transcript 
as well, which you can get via our website. You just go to www.theiopn.com, click on podcast, and then follow the links to the website there where you can get not only this podcast, obviously, but all related podcasts with Kevin, but also with some other researchers and experts and so on that I feel are relevant to this to this episode. But we will be back, won't we, Kev? We will be back. So we'll have other topics that we want to get into, but also it's worth me putting out there if you as listeners, if there's topics you would specifically like me and Kevin to get into or for me to find some other experts, then please do let us know. You can contact us via the IOPN website or through the contact us page on the wedoscience.com website specifically for this. So do do that. And I will link to Kevin's other podcasts and research and all his contact information should you want to. Have you got any parting words for us, Kev, beyond that? Well, it's just exciting to do the first pod as a full-on IOPN team member. Fantastic. I'm really excited too, Kev. And I'm sure the listeners are as well. Huge, huge amount of plans going forwards, which includes many podcasts like this. And I hope everyone remains safe and well. And we look forward to bringing another IOPM podcast back to you all very soon. Take care, everyone. Thanks again, Kev. Thank you.